Good morning. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm one of the elders here for our church. And uh, this morning, the sermon I'd like to preach to you is entitled, Welcome to Hell. And it's funny how circumstances coincide from time to time. I, I need to make a disclaimer that uh, this, this sermon does not have this topic because of the election results, okay, nor because of the baby dedication. It's not a statement of parenting either. But as we dig into the text, we will see what the Lord has for us. In, uh, in Dante Alighieri's epic poem, Inferno, where the poet gets a personal tour of the pits of hell, there is a famous sign hanging over the entrance gate as he enters hell. The sign reads, Abandon every hope, you who enter. And while Dante's poem is was not breathed out by God and it is not to be trusted as being without error as the scripture is, yet without a doubt, it, it was influenced by biblical principles. For example, one of the most striking things about Dante's portrayal of hell is that no inhabitant of that place is repentant. That is, none of them takes any responsibility for their actions or shows any remorse for their actions. And they certainly have remorse for their suffering, but they blame others for putting them there. They exact anger, bitterness, and vengeance on anyone and anything, but there is nobody in Dante's picture of hell who doesn't want to be there. And by that, I mean there is nobody in hell who is willing to give up the behavior that put them there. And this is a profound point. That sign admonishing entrance to abandon all hope has multiple meanings. Where it's, in one sense, it's about abandoning all hope of getting out or abandoning all hope of relief to your suffering. But even more profoundly, I think the sign may have all, may have more to do with abandoning all hope of ever being right. Abandoning all hope of ever being vindicated or justified in your actions. For those in hell, your presence in hell proves that you were wrong. And that is the one thing that no inhabitant of hell will ever admit. This is the one thing that every sinner in hell demands is vindication. And it is the one thing that hell will never give them. This morning, our passage in Exodus welcomes us to hell. Welcome to a hell that exposes your and my self-justifying self-righteousness. While condemning such self-justifying sinners to suffer the devastating consequences of their insane choices. Our text in Exodus this morning presents us with two options. First, will you keep doing what you want to do and continue blaming God and others for the damage caused by your own wickedness? Or, second, will you 
fear the word of the Lord. Giving up your right to being right and taking responsibility for your failure to adhere to God's righteous demands. Such submission or such obstinacy makes all the difference between life and death, between light and darkness, between hope and despair. Before I read from Exodus chapter 9, which if you have a church Bible is on page 33, let me explain where we are in this story of Exodus. God's people, the Hebrews, have been oppressed as slaves by Pharaoh, king of Egypt, for far too long. God sent a man, Moses, to deliver his people into freedom, but Pharaoh has refused to grant them their freedom. And because Pharaoh has refused, God must now take down both Pharaoh and his gods. Yahweh, the God of heaven and earth, has already sent at this point six plagues to beat down Pharaoh and all Egypt. The Nile River was turned completely to blood. Frogs swarmed the land and died, creating a public health crisis. Waves of insects have swarmed them, first gnats and then flies. And the Egyptian livestock caught a pestilence and died. And a painful skin disease broke out on both humans and animals. And today we'll look at three more plagues. The narrator presents these nine plagues. We've seen six already. Today we'll see three more. The narrator presents these nine plagues as three cycles of three plagues each. That's why we've preached them this way. And let me show this to you briefly so you can understand why we've divided them this way. The first plague in each cycle begins with Moses confronting Pharaoh early in the morning. Chapter 7, verse 15, God says, Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. That's the first plague. But then the fourth, in chapter 8, verse 20, the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water. And then in chapter 9, 13, today, the beginning of the third cycle, Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh. So the cycles start off with these early morning confrontations. The second plague in each cycle is stated simply as a confrontation with Pharaoh. Exodus 8.1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. Exodus 9.1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord. And then in Exodus 10.1, the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh. That's the second plague. And then the third plague in each cycle has no confrontation with Pharaoh at all. There is no chance for Pharaoh to respond, just a symbolic gesture and then an act of judgment. So in chapter 8, verse 16, the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so it may become gnats. In chapter 9, verse 8, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. It shall become fine dust and become boils breaking out in sores. And then in 10.21, the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. The point I wanted to show you is that we have three clear cycles of three plagues each. 
says one, two, three, and then he repeats it. One, two, three, and then he repeats it. One, two, three. But why does the narrator do it this way? It's nice to see a beautiful structure to the narrative here, but we must also grasp the thinking behind it, where each cycle is like an act in the drama of deliverance, and each act has a different focus. And Dan has done a great job taking us through those first two acts of this plague, this, this play of the plagues. Cycle one of the first three plagues, that focused, the narrative there focuses on making sure that everybody knows that Yahweh is the one bringing these plagues. In other words, cycle one is trying to communicate that Yahweh is the judge. Cycle two focused on making a distinction between Egypt and Israel. A division between God's friends and God's enemies. That what, what that communicates is that Yahweh is the shepherd who cares for his people and does not treat them the same way as his enemies. Now that we've hit cycle three, this cycle now focuses on the complete and utter destruction of the land of Egypt. In other words, this third cycle communicates to us that Yahweh is the destroyer of worlds. He is the judge, he is the shepherd, and he is the destroyer of worlds. Where we are, the dial is set to ten, the volume is turned all the way up, and we are no longer dealing with sickness, pain, or hard labor. The problem for the Egyptians is no longer that they need to dig around the Nile to find clean water. We're now dealing with death, plain and simple. And the problem that they will have to face is how to escape certain doom. Welcome to hell on earth. We will see that Yahweh dominates those who exalt themselves. Yahweh devastates those who refuse to humble themselves. And Yahweh deteriorates creation's goodness. Let me pray for us, and then I will read the first plague. Father, please help us to see and understand your word. Help us to grasp this fact that you are the destroyer of worlds. Life and death is in your hands. Help us to bow before you and to fear your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus 9, starting at verse 13. Then Yahweh... Lord, in all capital letters, is God's name Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh, and say to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow... I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter for every man and beast that is in the field 
and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hands toward heaven so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven and Yahweh sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth and Yahweh rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. Yahweh is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with Yahweh, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to Yahweh. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is Yahweh's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear Yahweh God. The flax and the barley were struck down, for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to Yahweh, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as Yahweh had spoken through Moses. Here is plague number seven, the plague of hail. And this one has the longest narrative of any of the nine plagues in these three cycles. For that reason, I, I won't be able to cover every detail. But I think the length of this narrative is partly meant to simply overwhelm us with God's power and his glory. Let me make a few observations. At the end of verse 14, God says that he wants Pharaoh to admit that there is none like him in all the earth. In other words, God will make Pharaoh say uncle, one way or another. Verse 15, God says, I could have made this easy. I could have just wiped you out at the beginning, but I chose not to. Why? Verse 16, it was to show my power so that my name would be proclaimed in all the earth. You see this? Why does God send nine plagues? It is for this reason. God wants to be famous. God wants to be famous. He wants everyone to know just how powerful he is, and he wants everyone to know just how scary he is. And you know what? It works. 
It works. Future generations of Hebrews would proclaim it. In Deuteronomy 6, verses 21 and 22, God says to the people, Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and Yahweh brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And Yahweh showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. Future generations of Hebrews would proclaim it, but other nations would also know it. God's name would be proclaimed in all the earth. One nation was a group of people called the Gibeonites, and they proclaimed God's great name and what he had done. It made them seek an alliance with Israel. In Joshua 9.9, the Gibeonites say to Joshua, the leader of, of Israel, from a very distant country your servants have come Because of the name of Yahweh, your God, for we have heard a report of him and of all that he did in Egypt. And God's enemies would proclaim his name. The Philistines, another country, they would proclaim it and they would not come to seek an alliance, but they would fight. And this would strike terror in their hearts. In 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, We're told that the Philistines were very afraid, for they said, a God has come into our camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They're talking about the God of Israel. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. So you see, it works. The plagues that God brought on Egypt made his name go out and all the world came to know that Yahweh was a God to be feared. And then later in the New Testament, in Romans chapter 9, Paul, an early Christian missionary, he quotes this passage from Exodus 9 when he discusses the very difficult doctrine of God's sovereign election where God has mercy on some people and he hardens others. And Paul says that God does it so that those who receive his mercy would know just how undeserving they are. And we ought to praise and thank him all the more for snatching us out of this certain destruction. But friends, this God is not a whimsical God. He is not a God who turns away from him people who really wish they could be close to him. No, God's fury has the effect of giving people over to exactly what they want. Back in Exodus 9, look at verse 17. God says, you to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. God's saying at this point, okay, Pharaoh, If you want to exalt yourself, you can have at it. Why should I stop you? Let's see if you can really control the weather or the economy like you claim. Let's see if you can exert power over life and death. That's what you think. And you're exalting yourself over my people. You are claiming life and death over them. Let's see. You think you can do this. Let's see how that will work out for you. And so God then warns them of the coming hailstorm. 
in verses 18 and 19, he does this remarkable thing. He gives them advance warning and he gives them a chance, time to bring in their slaves and their livestock from the field. And we're told in 20 and 21 that whoever feared the word of Yahweh among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of Yahweh left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Friends, how does this apply? As we look at plague number seven, the plague of hail, how does this apply? You need to know that you have a choice. You have a choice. You can fear the Lord and do what he says, or you can disregard him and die for it. God says that you are exalting yourself. God says that you have done things you shouldn't have done. And you have not done the things that you ought to have done. This is called sin. And if you hold on to it, it will kill you. But if you turn away from it, if you set it aside, you can have life. God sent his son to die in your place so you could share his life. Do you care what God says? Do you care about what he has to offer you? He has given you fair warning and he has given you a way out. Will you fear his word? Or will you blame God for making your life hard? Will you blame God for not being nice? Will you blame God for sending you to hell? Yahweh dominates those who exalt themselves. Moving on to the next plague, we see that Yahweh devastates those who refuse to humble themselves. In chapter 9, verses 31 and 32, there's this parenthetical statement. It's there to tell us that only the flax and the barley were destroyed by the hailstorm. Historically, we know in, in Egypt, where that in that, that place of the world, those crops grow in, in January. That's where they come to, to, to bear their, their fruit. But the wheat and the barley, they, uh, sorry, the wheat and the emmer were not struck. They don't grow until March. So the Lord has other plans for those crops. So a few weeks go by, maybe a few months, and then we hit chapter 10. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them. And that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am Yahweh. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, Behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land. And they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat every tree of yours that grows in the field. And they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians, as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned and went out from Pharaoh. 
Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go that they may serve Yahweh their God. Do you not understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve Yahweh your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to Yahweh. But he said to them, Yahweh be with you if ever I let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No, go, the men among you, and serve Yahweh, for that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then Yahweh said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts, so that they may come upon the land of Egypt and eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, and Yahweh brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt, such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against Yahweh your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once and plead with Yahweh your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with Yahweh, and Yahweh turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in all the country of Egypt, but Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. This eighth plague has the second longest narrative out of the nine plagues. So again, I can make only a few observations. First, look at verse 2. God wants the Hebrews to tell their children and grandchildren how how harshly he dealt with the Egyptians and the signs that he did so that they might know that he is Yahweh. And so here we are still telling our children and our grandchildren, children, children, you need to know our God, Yahweh, we now know him as Jesus. He is a ferocious God. He is terrifying and he deals terribly with his enemies. But when you love him, he will never give you what you deserve. Fear this God. Worship this God. In Exodus 9, verse 17, in the last plague, Pharaoh's problem was one of exalting himself. Now in verse 3 of chapter 10, we see the problem is that he refuses to humble himself. It's not enough for him to stop lording himself over others. He must also bring himself low before this God. In verses 5 and 6, we see that these locusts are not a mere annoyance. 
but they will devour everything left by the hail. They will leave Egypt with no crops, no agriculture for this season. And this will cause widespread famine in the land, every bit as damaging as the one that God's man Joseph rescued them from centuries earlier. Except this time there is no Joseph. He has Moses, but he continually drives Moses out of his presence. In verse 7, Pharaoh's own servants are begging Pharaoh to give in. And he does partly, but he won't go all the way. And in verses 14 and 15, the text emphasizes the total destruction of the land. Look at those verses again. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before, nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. You see the total destruction, the utter devastation, such that in verse 17, when Pharaoh brings Moses back and he begs Moses to plead with Yahweh, his request is only to remove this death from me. Pharaoh is beginning to break. He's beginning to see the complete and utter death that Yahweh is wreaking on his land. How does this apply for us? Friends, whatever you love and hold on to more than the God of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever you love more than him, you will lose. If you exalt yourself against him, if you refuse to humble yourself, God must break you down and he will bring utter devastation. You see, God wants all of you. He wants everything that you have. This is what it means to follow him. And if you don't give him everything that you have, if you don't give him all of yourself, he will take it. That's the kind of God he is. He is a God who wants it all. So you can't keep it anyway. Why not just give it up willingly to follow him and serve him? Yahweh dominates those who exalt themselves and Yahweh devastates those who refuse to humble themselves. But finally, as we look at the ninth plague, Yahweh deteriorates creation's goodness. With every plague so far, we've seen a reversal of creation. The very beginning, in Genesis 1, God created water, and in chapter 2, he gave water for his people to drink, but the plague, first plague on Egypt made the water turn to blood and become undrinkable. Back at the beginning, God created humanity to rule over the animals and over the creation, and the plagues consistently have shown the animal world ruling over humanity and making their lives difficult. God breathed life into his people at the beginning, but the plagues have brought pain and suffering, even death. He's been reversing creation. And now, in this ninth plague, the, the final plague of this cycle of nine plagues, we see the final step. 
God's very first creative act was to create light. Let there be light. And now even that gets reversed and we go back to utter uncreation. Chapter 10, verse 21. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, go, serve Yahweh. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to Yahweh our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve Yahweh our God. And we do not know with what we must serve Yahweh until we arrive there. But Yahweh hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face again. I'm going to go right to application in this one. Don't mistake hell for sunshine and rainbows. I'm serious. Hell will never be a place where you get to have fun with your friends. It's not a place where you will enjoy life to the fullest, delighting in all the things you most desire. Make no mistake. Hell is a place where creation unravels. When God created the heavens and the earth, he called everything good. He made it to function properly and to yield delightful things. But in hell, all of that gets turned upside down. That's why one of the most common ways that Jesus refers to hell is the outer darkness. There is no light there. There is no joy. There are no peaceful nature walks or satisfying pleasures. No, in that place there will be unending weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping because all of your hopes are dashed and you will never be justified in your choices because the world is working constantly against you. It will be like a never-ending mechanical failure or natural disaster. And everyone who is there in hell lives only for themselves. Nobody ever helps each other or works together. Hell is a place of weeping and it is a place of gnashing of teeth because you will be so furious at what God and others have done to you. You will never take responsibility for your choices. Hell is not a happy place. This is not a desirable situation. Some of you who are here today are still exploring Christianity and you have never committed to following Jesus. And I am so glad you are here today and you are welcome to be with us. Maybe today is the day 
Today is the day for you not to put it off any longer. Please submit to Jesus Christ. Turn away from your sin and face Jesus and follow him. Today is the day. Some of you who are here this morning, some of you claim to follow Jesus and are probably even members of our church. But maybe you still hold a secret stash of presumed happiness in your life that you haven't yet given up. Maybe you lead a double life. You act one way when you're here, but you have thoughts and behaviors outside of these walls that you hope nobody ever discovers. Maybe a broken home life filled with isolation, abuse, or rampant selfishness. Maybe you're just yelling at your children when they cross you. Maybe it involves watching movies and pictures that fill you with shame and guilt. Maybe it means hoarding money and possessions which will never be enough for you. Please, turn from your sin and submit your life to the Lord Jesus. Today is the day. If you don't, this worship service might be the closest you ever get to heaven. Some of you who are here today, you fear the Lord and you obey his word. You are not perfect, but you systematically search out those areas in your life where you haven't submitted to Jesus and you annihilate them by the power of the Holy Spirit within you. And I praise God for you. And I praise God that you are a part of this community to offer help and support to one another. And for those of you who are giving everything to Jesus, this world is the closest you will ever get to hell. A fiery sermon like this and the suffering that you endure in this fallen world, it's the worst it'll get. So to all of you, whoever you may be and wherever you may be with the Lord Jesus, to all of you, this text says, welcome to hell. Abandon every hope, you who enter. And this morning, may we each meet with the God who gives us hope for freedom, that we might escape that final hailstorm of his fury and the outer darkness that never ends. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this is a sobering passage. But you are the God of hosts. You are the Lord of armies. Your every enemy will be defeated. And you will dominate those who exalt themselves. You will devastate those who refuse to humble themselves. You will deteriorate creation's goodness. Lord, we run to Jesus. We cling to Jesus. He is our only hope. We cannot rescue ourselves. Help us to stand before you and to walk with you all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.